uh, we are going to begin our last quarter, I hope, of our theme. There we go. Our last quarter of our theme, in which we're talking about being holy. And uh, as you can tell above me here, the idea of being holy in my worship. I want to welcome everybody that's here this morning. Uh, glad you're here. Uh, we have a number of people that are away or out, and so look around you and take notice of maybe of who might not be here, and uh, let's reach out and check on them. But good to see everyone. There are visitors in our midst, and we're certainly glad that you're here. Uh, one note about next Sunday morning, just a reminder, you may have seen in the bulletin last week, twice a year, I try to do this in April, usually the second Sunday, sometimes the third, but April and October, um, I take questions, and I have a particular theme, and uh, particular theme, and we have questions, and you're, you know, you submit the questions. Uh, there'll be cards for you to write them out. Everybody's been here before knows what that's all about. But we're going to talk about the church, uh, the church itself. And so, if you have questions about that, something you want to ask, something you want to have addressed, or whatever, next Sunday morning will be a good opportunity for that. So. Just kind of keep that in mind, be thinking during this week about the church, about questions and so forth, and we'll do that next Sunday morning. Let's get right into our lesson this morning, Be Holy in My Worship. Our theme verse this year has been, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So let's talk about that as we begin to explore our topic for the quarter and I don't know why this thing is so sluggish this morning. There it goes. Be holy in my worship. Let's start off by asking or by taking note of the fact that we've been studying this theme. And we've been putting a lot of considerable public teaching and even in classes as well toward the idea of being holy in four general areas. And our goal, our basic goal, has been for each individual, and it will be again this quarter, to focus attention on his or her personal holiness. So sometimes holiness is addressed from the standpoint of a nation or a church, but we're more emphasizing the idea of personal holiness in four specific areas. We've talked about being holy in our relationship. Now certainly that's every relationship, whether it's husband, wife, parent, children, the job, whatever it might be, but especially our relationship with God and we will circle back to some of that during the quarter. We also spent two quarters that were very much related, looking at two sides, perhaps, of the same issue. The idea of being holy in my weakness, being holy in my strength, and this quarter we are going to focus on being holy in my worship. Now that begs a couple of questions to start with. If we're talking about being holy, God says, for I am holy, let's remind ourselves of what it means to be holy. You may remember this definition from the very first quarter, almost the first, maybe it was the first lesson. To be holy means literally to be set apart, to be sacred, to be set apart by God or for God. There are a number of passages of Scripture that talk about God doing what He has done for Himself, for His own benefit. So to be set apart by God or for God. Properly... The word itself just means to be different, and not to be different for difference sake, but to be different with a purpose, or to be unlike others with a purpose, and that purpose means that there are implications of being godlike. So I want to be different 
if the majority of those around me or the majority of situations around me or whatever it might be have degenerated into something that is very ungodlike, to be different from that would be godlike and certainly different from the world. It's something, when you talk about something that's holy, it's something that's venerated. That is, it's set up and looked up to and respected in that sense, revered. Something that is distinctly identified with God. Now, all of these ideas give us a picture of what it means to be holy. So, we beg the second part of the question, then what is worship? If we're going to be holy in our worship, what is worship? And I think most people have an idea. When you say worship... Most people, the connotation is religious, and they have some idea of something like we have done already this morning. We have come to worship. We have worshipped God. But I want to look a little bit different, or rather a little bit deeper is the word I'm looking for, into that idea. So what is worship? You look in a dictionary, and I did a couple of them, kind of put this together, and this is what it would tell you. That worship are the acts of worship, formal or informal, are things you do, acts you commit, to show love, to show esteem, that is, that someone is higher, or respect, even reverence in respect to God. It is a clear expression of obeisance. What is obeisance? Obeisance is an action you take to lower yourself in the presence of someone higher. For example, if you were to, Montel and I were watching last night, we were watching a few people go in front of the queen. And the proper thing to do in going in front of the queen is to bow. And the idea of bowing before a superior like that is obeisance. But there can also be The devotion that's behind that. Now, you may show that respect just for the position someone's in, but you really are not devoted to that individual. On the other hand, you might be devoted to an individual and show it. It's the acknowledgement of God. So when we're talking about worshiping God, the acknowledgement of God's superiority. He is God. Think again, and I'm not going to put it up this morning, but the picture of the mountain. He is up there. I am down here. If I were in His presence, He is God. We like to think, for example, if we had been one of the apostles and we had gone to the Passover meal, we would not have been like them and had to wait for Him to get up and bow down and wash our feet. We might have been shocked and we might have been like Peter. No, Lord, you're not washing my feet because you're greater than I am. You're superior to me. The importance of God. So, Let's simplify it a little bit. It's the act, then, of showing respect and love for God. Now, maybe that's a little different. When we think of acts of worship, our minds may immediately run to the Lord's Supper, to singing, to praying, you know, to giving, to preaching. And that would be true. But the point is, those things we do, like the Lord's Supper, they are not merely ritualistic To go through the motion of doing them, it is an act of showing respect and love for God. An act or an expression of our reverence for God. A form, yes, of religious practice, but with purpose. To show devotion or esteem to God. Interestingly, the original word worship, 
and you know how I am with words. I love words. I love languages. And so it's interesting many times to go back and see where a word came from. And this one is very interesting. So the original word worship was a compound word that literally meant, and notice this idea, to kiss forward. Now think about that for a moment. If I'm standing here, and we're not talking about a kiss where a man or a woman (laughs) run together, but we're talking about the idea of a kiss of respect. Well, you know how that goes. For example, someone may extend their hand. There may be a signet ring on the hand showing authority, etc., maybe similar to what I've got on. Someone takes the hand and kisses the ring. It is a kiss toward an individual, again, to show respect. But, notice where it literally came from. It was a word that came... All right, well, it came from a word for an animal, like a dog, for example, an animal that would, quote, lick the hand of its master. Now, I doubt very seriously if someone said this morning to you, are we going to worship this morning, that you thought when you heard that, are we going to kiss the hand, or lick the hand, rather, of our master. I doubt very seriously anybody thought about that this morning. And yet, literally, when we talk about worship... We talk about the position of a loving, devoted dog running up to its master and licking its hand. Now think about that for a moment. When you get past the comical side of it, just think about that for a moment and think about the love that is within that animal. You know, a dog is a very interesting animal. I'm not a big animal person, but I've always thought it was very interesting how probably the first domesticated animal was a dog. You know, while wolves are ferocious, and some people try to keep wolves, and a wolf will even even turn on its own master because it's still wild, somewhere back there, some of those chose to be domesticated, and not only that, but to be devoted and loving toward human beings. Think about that image for a moment when we think about worship. Worship, then, the word, licking the hand of your master, came to have the general meaning of one crouching, that is, lowering, bowing, etc., or prostrating himself in reverence to his master. And it was a master he adored, like a dog who adores his master. One he deemed worthy of praise or honor. If you've ever seen a devoted animal... It will respect its master. And one can easily see then why worship would be the action a Christian would take toward Jesus. I'm devoted to Jesus. I love Jesus. I respect Jesus. I am the servant of Jesus. I am, in that very real sense, the dog to his owner, to his master. I don't have to be, you understand. He's not compelling me to be. He's not taking a whip and forcing me to be. I choose to be. But I choose for all the things He is. Maybe like somewhere back in thousands and thousands of years ago, some wild wolf chose to do that towards some human being. Maybe like that. But that's what we choose. Now that's the picture, literally, of worship. When we look in the Word of God and we begin to see worship... That is the idea. No matter what we've made of it, that is the biblical idea of worship. And so, I think we see it. In in Scripture, we commonly see 
The action of falling down before someone to worship. Think about some of the passages of Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25. The picture is of an assembly. Someone comes in. He witnesses what maybe like someone might have done this morning. But he witnesses what we are doing, the songs we're singing. He looks at the words, these beautiful songs that Edward chose for us to sing and talk about worship. But he looks at those words. He says, do these people feel that? Is that the way they feel toward God, toward Jesus in particular? The idea is a person would observe what we're doing and they would be convinced that this is real. It is genuine. And so... Falling down on his face, Paul said, he will worship God. But notice that image there. The crouching, the falling down, the bowing before in order to worship. But it's consistent. Even if you go back to the Old Testament, you remember when Nebuchadnezzar erected the image? And there was the edict. Whenever you hear the music, you fall down and worship the image. That was the picture of true worship. To fall down, to bow down, to get down on your knees is the idea. Again, we might look at the devil. And the devil understood that. And when he was tempting Jesus in Matthew 4, remember he was trying to make a deal with Jesus. I give you all of this, all the kingdoms of the world. All these things I'll give you if you will, quote, fall down and worship me. We've looked also at this picture in Revelation of the 24 elders. That I believe it represents, if you look at it represents Christians there. I'd be glad to talk with you about that. But represents Christians who willingly fall down before Him, Jesus, who sits on the throne, God who is on the throne, and worship Him. They fall down. They worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they even cast their own crowns. Whatever victories we have, whatever greatness we have, we willingly cast that down to the ground in the presence of God. And isn't that the choice we make? Isn't that what we're saying? My own importance, well, that's just it. Mine is not important, but yours is. I relinquish everything about myself, all of my pride, everything that I think of myself as being superior, as being great, perhaps as being greater than someone else, all of that pales in comparison to how great Jesus is. And so I praise Jesus, and I honor Jesus, and I lick the hand of Jesus, if you will. And I don't see that as a denigrating thing in any sense, because He is so great, and He has done so much. And what I feel, what I want, I'm compelled to fall to the ground in thanksgiving to Jesus. And I'm compelled to bow myself before His greatness. Oh, someone who would do the things He's done only deserves that kind of praise. You see, the devil, and often other people, would usurp. They would take away that praise, that honor. So we might see images of those who would stick their hand out and say, bow down before me and lick my hand or kiss my ring or whatever it might be. But no one deserves that. We should be, in our minds and our hearts, we should be like the people in the Bible, when someone, an angel or a person, might, tempt, might, might fall down, bow before them. And the angel would say, or the human being would say, stand up. You know, get up. I'm just a fellow human being. I'm not God. The angel even would say, no, bow down before God. Kiss the hand of God. Honor, respect, esteem God. So when we're talking about 
being holy in my worship. A passage comes to mind, and I want you to go with me there to John chapter 4. And I'm going to look at a couple of passages in the Gospels this morning to talk about worship. But go with me to John 4. Now, this is when Jesus met the Samaritan woman. I'm sure you know the story. He met her at the well, and remember she had some marital problems and all of that kind of thing. But then they get into a discussion, and the woman wants to divert attention away from the fact she's had five husbands. She wants to talk about the differences in the religious practices of the Samaritans as versus the Jews. So we'll jump in the middle of this discussion. Go down with me to verse 20. When she says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Now this particular well, Jacob's well, is at the foot of Mount Gerizim. And we know from history, Mount Gerizim was a major worship place, uh, a site of Samaritan worship. So she said, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. But you, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's diverting attention away from her personal sin. And she's getting in a religious discussion. You may have known people who would do the same thing. You know, you go to talk to them. You think you're going to talk to them about their lives. You think you're going to talk to them about their sins and the remedy for their sins. And they want to get off on some particular doctrine they're aware that you believe and they disagree with. And that's not the issue. Because way before we talk about some minute little detail within the doctrine, that's important. But way before we get on that issue, we need to talk about the most basic issue. And that is whether or not you're willing to bow yourself before the Son of God. And so she said, you know, where's the place to worship? Well, Jesus answers her. In verse 21, Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not understand, what you don't know. We happen to worship for you know correctly, for salvation is of the Jews. But again, that's not the important point. The important point, verse twenty-three, is the hour is coming and is even now when the true worshippers, and this is the point, the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So worship, then, Jesus is saying, must be, in two primary elements of worship, it must be in spirit and in truth, and equally so. So notice that. Worship must be in spirit and in truth. And he says, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is a spirit, verse 24. And they that worship Him, if you're going to worship God, you must worship in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? To worship in spirit and in truth. Well, let me suggest to you, first of all, it's more than a place. People get hung up on the place of worship. There's this particular mountain, she said. Gerizim. You have a mountain in Jerusalem. My mountain is better than your mountain. You know, kind of like the old generation song. My mountain's better than your mountain. You know, that kind of thing. It's more than a place, because it really doesn't matter. And the hour is coming, Jesus said, and it really is even now. It doesn't matter what mountain you're in. No, it's more than a place. You must worship in spirit. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's also more than a desire. And I think most people are hung up on either one of these two things. Some people are hung up on the place. If it's not this building or that temple or that particular place then it is not worship. 
I've known people over the years, for example, who would, like what we did a couple of weeks ago. Someone might suggest we're going to have a tent meeting. So Sunday evening, we're going to have our services. We're going to conduct our services out under the tent on the lawn and allow anybody in the neighborhood that wants to witness what we do to see that. Someone might, no, we didn't have this, not here. But someone might suggest, and I've known other places where someone immediately would say, well, is that right? Because the place of worship, this, inside here, is the sanctuary. This is the holy place. Is it holy out under a tent on the grass? Someone else might look at this building and say, you know, this building is so simple, it's so plain. And in comparison to maybe another building that is so grand and has such riches within it, can this be considered a holy place? Jesus said the place is not important. No, a person needs to worship in spirit. To put that in very, very simple language, what's inside a person when they're worshiping is what's important. So someone else said that's exactly right. As long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter where you are or even what you're doing. As long as you're sincere, as long as in your heart you feel that devotion toward Jesus. Well, I want to suggest to you it's more than a desire. Because Jesus did say, and I want you to look back at this passage, when she questioned the mountain, he clearly said the place is not important, but he also clearly said, if you'll notice in this passage, verse 20, in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Because at this time, when Jesus was speaking to her, the law of God, the truth, of God was that the mountain in Jerusalem was the correct mountain. So it's not simply being sincere that's important. It is important. And you can be in the right place and be insincere and it's worthless. But you can also be sincere and be in the wrong place and are doing the wrong thing and it's worthless. Jesus is telling us true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. For example, in Philippians 3, Paul makes this point in verse 3. We are the ones who worship God in our spirit. That is inside me when I'm singing these songs or taking the Lord's Supper or even sitting and reading my Bible and listening to a lesson like this. It's what's going on inside me. It's what I'm doing with it. That's important. Jesus does not walk up to this place, take a look at the sign out there in front, look at the building and say, stamp of approval. The Lord looks deeper than that. He is in our midst this morning. And He is looking not just at all of us who are here as opposed to somewhere else, but He is also not just looking at all of us who are here doing what we've done. He was looking into my heart as I drank the juice, as I sang the songs. So it is my spirit that questions, that judges whether I'm a true worshiper or not. Again, Paul said it in Romans 1 and verse 9. I serve God with my spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's also the truth. 
Jesus said in John 5, and if you can look in verses 39 and 40 there, Jesus clearly said, search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. For in them you think that you have eternal life. And they, the Scriptures, are they which testify of me. The point is, if you want to know about Jesus, if you want to know what he wants, who he is, how to worship him, how to kiss his hand, you look in the, in the Scriptures. It's just like in Joshua 24 when he told his own people so many years ago, God wanted our fathers who were beyond the great river of Euphrates, and he wants you right now to worship in sincerity, yes, but also in truth. And it's both sides of that that are important. If you want it simply put, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, I will sing with the Spirit, my Spirit. And I will sing with the understanding of the truth also. I will pray with the Spirit, my Spirit. And I will pray with the understanding of the truth also. True worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. So having put that together then, talking about holiness, something different, something set aside for God, by God, etc. Worship, the idea of the, the allegiance, the devotion, the... The praise, the admiration, the esteem, the reverence. If we put both of these ideas together, we say, well, what is holy worship? It's worship that's different. When we look around us in the world, we see religious people by the literally billions with a B. But not everyone worships the same, and worship of God is different. It's real. Not just going through emotions, but in your heart you couldn't care less. You know, I'm kind of drinking this juice and wondering, boy, I wonder if the Colts are really going to win in London this morning. You know? It's real. It's genuine. It comes from the heart. But it's more than just that. It involves the whole person. You know, a person can be sincere about their master Jesus and skip church this morning and not even go through the motions. It's more than just what's in the heart. It involves the whole person. It is effort that is put forth to do something to show your esteem, your love for your master. And it is something that's directed by the Lord. It can't be just what I want. It's got to be what does Jesus want. I'll make several observations. Some of these I'll touch on again in the quarter. But it's worship that puts the Lord first. Not myself. Not someone else. Not something else. If I worship Jesus, I put him first. And it is worship that puts what he wants first. A long time ago, a relative came to me, and I told you this, but it's been quite a while, so a lot of you haven't heard this. But a relative came to me, and this was over 30 years ago, and she said, I know you're a preacher. You know, any time someone says that, we know we're about to get a religious question. I know you're a preacher. And I know that you go to the Church of Christ... And you don't have a piano. I said, all of that's true. Definitely true. She said, I just want you to tell me. And she said, in simple terms, because I know you could talk all day, but, and, you know, because a relative, and I remember. But I want you to put in very simple language why you don't have a piano. And I said, I, I can do that. So I went to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, and I said, the Bible says singing, you know, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody in your heart and singing those to the Lord. It's that simple. The Bible says sing. The Bible says make the melody in your heart. 
So that's what we do. She gave one of those hmms. She said, but I just like a piano. And that was the end of the discussion. Worship puts what God wants first. Not what I want. Not what I like. Not what I think would be better. It asks the question, what do you want? You know, someone just saved you from a burning fire or drowning in the water, and you looked at them, chances are great you would say, what do you want? I'll give you anything. Chances are great you would not look at that person and say, boy, I'm glad you saved me from that fire. Now, here's what I want. And start listing off what you'd like. Someone might do that. But most of us would feel that's totally inappropriate. Worship from the heart of the individual. Or maybe from the spirit of the individual. Worship that doesn't seek to copy what other people do in the name of worship. That's not my first question. What do other people do? My first question is, what does the Lord want? What does He say? It's worship without compromise. I'm not going to you know, look at what I want and what makes me feel good and what I think is better and what might look better to my friends, family, or whomever and then start making compromises to you know, try to meet in the middle with that. It's not compromise. And it's not change for change's sake or personal preference. I just don't like what the Lord wants me to do and so let's change it. I want to get fired up about worshiping God. And I can't get fired up about this old thing that God said do, and it's just outdated, and it's something I'm tired of. It's not change for personal preference. Now, there are times to change when you can improve on doing what the Lord wants. But not change just simply because I don't like something or I do like something. When we look at the example in Luke chapter 7, I want you to look over there quickly with me. Now, Wes preached on this very recently, so I'm certainly not going to go through everything about this. But I want you to look at Luke 7 and drop down to about verse 19. Remember, Jesus was in a very uh, serious time of discussion and you might even say debate, argument, and so forth with the Jews. And it was going back back and forth. And this was a particularly hard time. Because John the Baptist, if you notice in verse 19, sent two of his disciples to Jesus and asked a question. A lot of debate about this, but he just simply asked the question, Are you the one that was supposed to come, or should we be looking for somebody else? Now, when the men came, they said John had sent them. And that same hour, of course, in verse 21... Jesus cured all kinds of people of infirmities and plagues and drove out demons and all of that kind of thing. And Jesus answered them with that. So he said, you go tell John what you've seen. You tell John what I've done. Tell him that the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf can hear and so forth. And verse 23, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended or stumble in me. In other words, as though I'm not what they're looking for. Now go further with it. When the messengers of John went away, Jesus began to address the crowd. And he started talking about what people look for and what they want and how some people don't get what they want or don't find what they want. We've seen that here. No telling. Some of you probably literally have seen hundreds, if not thousands, come through the door and not find what they were looking for. Now notice what Jesus goes on to say. 
When, he, when the messengers left, verse 24, he began to speak to the people concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? In other words, John was different. I dare say that Michael and Wes are different in our own respects. He's more odd than I No, that's not true. But we're different. But that's not the point, is it? Not at all. No, Jesus said, did you go out just to see how the guy was dressed or what he ate? And that's the idea here. Uh, You know, just kind of a sideshow freak. Is that what you went out to see? Behold, they which are gorgeously appareled, he said, and live delicately are in the king's courts. But what did you go out to see, verse 26? Did you go out to see a prophet? Is that what you went to see? Did you think you'd hear the truth? Well, you did. And much more than a prophet, he said. Because this was the last prophet. This was the guy that was going to introduce the very Son of God, the Messiah. It's what it was all about. And that's what you went out to see. And I say to you, verse 28, that among those that are born of women, there's not a person greater than John the Baptist, except he that is least in the kingdom of God. What? Jesus said, notice what's important. He goes on to say, verse 29, the Bible goes on to say, the people heard him, and the publicans, that is the tax collectors, the sinners, etc., justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees, the real religious people, the learned people, the lawyers, scribes, they rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized. Now, what's that about? Notice as he goes on in verse 31. The Lord said, where and to then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? What are people like? Well, he answers it. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, we have piped unto you, we played our music for you, and you didn't dance. We've mourned to you. That is, we put on a big show of crying and weeping and all of that, and you have not wept. And then he makes the point. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. And me, the son of man, I come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of the publicans and sinners. Wisdom is justified of her children. What does that mean? It means that most people, in the world, want what they want. They like what they like. And they will quickly tell you, I want you to agree with me. I want you to like the music I play. I want you to listen to what I do, look at what I do, and accept what I do. I do not want to look to a superior, even Jesus, and say, what do you want? I don't want to be that guy looking in the mirror saying, everything about my life has to change. And brother, I know that feeling. Everything had to change. If you're going to be a Christian, your whole life is going to be turned upside down. And I fought it, and I resisted it, but I knew that it was the truth. And there was no way to ask Jesus to play my music. To listen to my song and dance routine. And then to adjust his wants, his desires, according to what I want. It doesn't work that way. 
And then we see this woman in Luke 7. I'm not going to go into that story this morning. You know it is my favorite story. It is because of what she does. Who knows what she's been or what she's done? She's a sinner, and there's no doubt about that. She comes in and she licks the hand of her master. In fact, she licks his feet. She gets down on her knees. She cries. She washes his feet with her tears. She wipes them with her hair. Now that's worship. And in my heart, when I have that feeling toward God, it is holy worship. If you're here this morning and you need to come to Jesus, confess He's the Son of God. Be willing to change your life. Be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. If you've done that and you need to straighten out something in your life or ask for the prayers of the people here, you can certainly do that. Please come. I'll stand and see.